0: Hello and welcome to episode two of Let's Talk More About Sarcoma, brought to you by Socket to Sarcoma and the Cooper Rice Braiding Foundation. Last podcast, we talked about some of the warning symptoms of sarcoma and, if a sarcoma diagnosis is suspected, the critical need for a referral to a specialist sarcoma centre where your treatment will be managed by a multidisciplinary team or MDT. This podcast looks in more detail at some of the particular specialities covered within this team, what their roles are and how they're important in your care. We will meet pathologist Dr. Daniel Wong, clinical psychologist Deborah York, clinical nurse consultant Jackie Woods and surgical oncologist Professor David Giorgi. We also speak with Christine Coburn from Rare Cancers Australia about how a community support organisation can assist in directing referrals to an MDT. For more information, please check out the episode notes for this podcast and enjoy the episode. Well, today um, I've got the lovely uh, Dr. Daniel Wong, pathologist, joining us on the podcast. How are you, Daniel?
1: Good, Kath. Thanks very much for uh, inviting me to join your podcast. It's a real pleasure.
0: No, it's lovely. Lovely to have you with us and thank you for making time. I know uh, I know how busy you are. And um, before we get cracking, I thought it would be good if you could explain what pathologists actually do for the listeners.
1: Yep. Uh, so, yes, that's a good question uh, because we find that there is a bit of a misconception out in the community um so one of the things I guess we sometimes hear is people might say, um, I've got to go to the pathologist to get a blood test done. Um, and so whilst that is true, you do go to a pathology collection center to have a blood test. The, 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 the people who are doing those blood tests for you are actually phlebotomists, they're, they're not pathologists. Uh, one other um, misconception that we come across is that our pathologists just do autopsies all day. And that, that's something well, that's that I true.
2: think is. <laughs> that's not uh, true. No, no,
1: this is certainly not, not for me because, you yeah, know, I, I definitely did, did an envisage a courageous thing um, post-mortem. Uh, but I think that's something that's fueled by mm-hmm. uh, TV shows, like crime shows, where you often see a pathologist there doing the autopsy in the basement of a hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so that, that is true that, that there are some pathologists who do do autopsies, um, but that's a specific branch of pathology. So that's forensic pathology. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, within the pathology community, uh, forensic pathologists uh, only account for a small proportion of our community. That's so the vast majority of pathologists are what we call anatomical or histopathologists, and that's the branch of pathology that I'm in. So what we do, so we're, we're medically trained doctors mm-hmm. uh, who work within a laboratory setting. Uh, so patients often do not see us. We, we're completely behind the scenes. Um, but we look at tissue samples, so biopsies, uh, specimens that surgeons have cut out, and we study those under the microscope to come up with a diagnosis to help patient care. So that, that's essentially what we do.
0: Very interesting. And I've you've just um yes, you've you've changed how I see the word pathologist straight away. So thank you for that, Daniel. No base Hopefully. no basements for you. No basements for you. <laughs>
1: Hopefully for the better.
0: That's, no, absolutely. Um can I ask why why did you choose pathology? Um and and also how how did you build up experience as a pathologist in the sarcoma field?
1: Yep. Uh okay, so uh so all the way back when I was in high school, I knew that I would uh, have to get into the sciences because I was completely hopeless in the arts. So <laughs> I knew that I, I, I should stick to science. And um, the idea of working in a laboratory and uh, studying science down in microscope, I always found that very, very appealing for, for whatever reason. Um, but pathology was particularly attractive because um, not only do you get to... Uh, study the scientific aspects of uh, medicine, uh, but you're, you've got a direct role in patient care. So, um, uh, you know, the idea of uh, working on a diagnosis that might help um, uh, patients directly was a very attractive thing. So that, that's why I got into it. Um, pathology also lends itself quite well to teaching and research. They sort of go hand in hand mm-hmm. together. So um, I quite like those aspects of, of the profession as well. Um, so then going to your, the second part of your question, how do you build up experience, uh, particularly for sarcomas in pathology? So that, that's a very good question because uh, one of the major challenges in, with sarcomas is that it's, it's very rare. Uh, these are very, very rare tumors. They're far less common than, um, for example, bowel, excuse me, um, lung and breast cancer. So we often hear about all the these cancers in the news and in the lay media all the time because they're very common. Um, but sarcomas are rare. And so building up experience with these rare tumors is a challenge. And so we, we get around that um, by increasing the volume of cases by establishing what we call referral centers. So in WA where I work, uh, we're quite lucky here in that we have a, one single referral center for the entire state. And so I work at Sir Charles Gardner Hospital and Sir Charles Gardner is the referral center for sarcomas. So that means that um, you know, a patient uh, all the way in Kalgoorlie or all the way up north in WA, if they've got a serious sarcoma, chances are they're going to be referred to Sir Charles Gardner. And so that means that we then uh, build up a volume of cases and by seeing more cases, then you gain experience, you uh, come to be familiar with what you're seeing, you understand what are the pitfalls in diagnosis as well. Um, So that that works two ways. It helps us as diagnosticians uh, to build up that experience, but it obviously helps the patient as well Mm -hmm. uh, because the patient then knows that their biopsy is being read by pathologists who have experience in that field.
0: Daniel, so that's that's how it works in WA. Is it reciprocated around the states in, in Australia or is it very different per state?
1: Yeah, so with sarcomas, that is the that is the model that is proposed worldwide. The mm-hmm. the idea is that because you know, obviously the fact that sarcomas are rare, that's not something that's just isolated to Australia. That's a worldwide thing. And so throughout the world, the recommendation for these rare tumors is that you have these referral centers of expertise or, or you know, centers of excellence, centers of expertise. And so, yeah, so they do try and um, uh, follow that model in other states.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But um, I, uh, I think in some other states, for example, um, like I, I, because I, I don't know for sure, perhaps I shouldn't name this state specifically, but I, I do know there are some other uh, eastern states where. They'll have not just one, but a couple of referral centres. Okay. Whether that's because uh, there's a greater, there's a there's a larger population, or whether there are some, um, uh, uh you know, um, uh, government rules that come into play, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, similar. There, there may be similar. multiple referral centres. Yeah,
0: similar yeah. setup. Um, yeah. There are there are many different sarcoma diagnoses. Um, are they all malignant?
1: Yep, yeah, So. Okay, so we've, by definition, a sarcoma is malignant. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is by definition. Uh, so it is a malignant bone or soft tissue tumor. However, within that malignant category, there's a wide spectrum of behavior and aggressiveness. So in pathology, we grade sarcomas using a three-keyed system. So we talk about low-grade, intermediate-grade, and high-grade sarcomas. Um, at the lower grade uh, of the spectrum, uh here we're talking about sarcomas that uh, the the major problem is that they grow uh continuously at the site that they arise from. So, for example, if you've got a sarcoma within skeletal muscle within a limb, uh, some of those may grow slowly, but they certainly continue to grow over time. And so eventually the patient will need some treatment to control that. Whereas at the high grade end of the spectrum here we're talking about sarcomas that not only do they grow quickly, but they've got a significant risk of spreading. So it's something that we call metastasis or metastasizing, mm-hmm. which means that the the cancer has had access to the bloodstream and is able to spread to other organs like the lungs, the brain and to bone. And obviously by the time it spreads there it poses a significant risk to life. Um, And so there the treatment is uh, not only surgery, but you often need to combine it with other modalities like radiotherapy or even chemotherapy to try and control uh, the the disease.
0: Daniel, because there are so many sarcomas, um, are there ever challenges in determining which sarcoma someone has? Um, And if so, what can you do to get the most accurate diagnosis?
1: Yep. Uh, so absolutely. I mean, this, this is a, a particularly challenging area of medicine and pathology. Um, because one, they're rare. Uh, so, uh, as a pathologist, if you're working in a, in a general pathology laboratory, you may only see one or two a year,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, which is again why we have, um, referral centers. Um, and secondly, there are many different types of sarcomas. Um, I think the last time that I, check the World Health Organization classification, which is the gold the gold standard for how we classify sarcomas, there were more than 140 different types of sarcomas. And each of those have uh, up to a dozen variants as well. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a very large number of tumours that you need to be familiar with. Um, some of these tumours we might see once or twice a week. Some of these tumours we may see once every five to ten years. And so when it comes across your desk, you need to be able to, to identify that tumor. Um, and so th- that's, it's certainly challenging in that sense. Um, but if there are difficulties, then, um, there are a number of things that we can do. So, um, firstly, we, uh, can do some additional tests on the tissue. And again, this comes back to uh, what I was saying before about working in an, an area of expertise, a referral center where Uh, you have uh, access to these um, uh, additional testing methods. So here we're talking about these fancy molecular tests. Um, And so we may do molecular tests on the tissue to try and support a particular diagnosis that we see down a microscope. Secondly, uh, you rely a lot on your colleagues. So this is certainly not a one-person job. Mm -hmm. It definitely isn't that. Um, uh, It's a team effort. Uh, so even within the pathology community, for example, where I work, we have, um, there's three of us who specialize in sarcomas, and so we come together once a week. Every Tuesday afternoon, we will sit around a multi-header microscope, and we review difficult cases, and uh, you, you want that, so because these diagnoses, obviously, they have a, a major impact on patients and their families. You need to get it right. Um, And so it is better to have a consensus diagnosis to make sure that the three of us agree on a particular diagnosis before we communicate that to our clinical colleagues. And then sometimes it's so difficult that the three of us can't come to an agreement. Uh, So in that case, we default to an international expert opinion. So uh, we, yeah, we, we have contacts uh, overseas Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, uh, as I think I was telling you before we started the podcast, Cap, that it's a very nice community, the sarcoma um, community. Mm-hmm. In general, most people are very, very nice, including the guys who work overseas. Yes. And so yeah. many of them uh, will, will offer their opinion. Sometimes they even do it free of charge for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we do send it overseas to people in, uh, uh, the main guy we send it to is in Boston um, at Harvard. And uh, so but, but the catch is that uh, that takes time. I was
0: going to say, and so there uh, isn't just a quick sort of flick diagnosis. That that would add some time to a turnaround for you, wouldn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I guess it's important for our listeners to, to understand that, that um, sometimes when there is a delay in diagnosis, it's because of that reason. Mm-hmm. So we need to mail it over to the US and COVID has made that even more difficult now because the postage system is so slow. So even though we're using express post, registered post, sometimes it still takes about three weeks for, for it to get to, get, uh, to the U.S. Or, or wherever we're sending it. Um, so, yes, yeah, so it does cause, a, unfortunately, a delay in diagnosis.
0: But worth it in the long run um, to, to, all, yeah. you yeah, to all collude on the same sort of um, diagnosis.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It's far better to wait and get it right than to rush in and uh, treat someone uh, on the basis of an incorrect diagnosis,
2: absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: Daniel, can I ask, um, why is it so important for a biopsy to be done by a specialist who um, has expert knowledge of sarcoma? Uh,
1: yes, yeah, so um, so that again comes down to the fact that these the sarcomas are rare. Mm-hmm. Yep. So if a, if a biopsy is being read by a general pathologist, uh, they may only see sarcomas once or twice a year, uh, whereas if it's coming to, uh, a referral center where you have people who have expertise in that area, we, where we see these, uh, you know, we may see several in a week. Um, and so you're much more familiar with the area, but importantly, uh, you're familiar with the, the pitfalls. Mm-hmm. Now, that's really where it becomes dangerous, um, or, or potentially problematic, uh, to be able to recognize, uh, mimics, uh, to be able to recognize those pitfalls and avoid them. So, um, uh, that's one thing. The other thing is that, uh, those who have expertise in sarcomas are again working in centers where we have access, ready access to fancy molecular tests to support the diagnosis. Um, and then finally, um, with, um, uh, pathologists who have expertise in sarcomas, as I said, it's a team effort. We work within a multidisciplinary team. So uh, here in WA in Perth, we have a weekly meeting uh, Wednesday morning at 7 o'clock in the morning. Oh, early, um, early, early, yeah, early. <laughs> absolutely. In fact, my alarm goes off at 5 on Wednesday oh, so that I can get, it, get there in time and prepare for this meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, but here, uh, and I think this is, this is probably the major benefit of sending it to people who have expertise in sarcomas, is that we work within a multidisciplinary setting. So every Wednesday morning, we have a meeting where the sarcoma surgeons are there, the orthopedic surgeons, the medical radiation oncologists are there who have expertise in sarcomas, the musculoskeletal radiologists are there as well, nursing staff, allied health staff, everyone's there. Uh, And uh, we go through a list of patients individually to discuss the issues. Um, and so everyone is on the same page. Um, if there are any issues, uh, someone will flag that and we will discuss it to make sure that uh, we come up with a consensus diagnosis and a consensus management plan for that patient. And I, for me, I think that is the major benefit of sending it to a sarcoma um, centre yeah, with expertise. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Marvellous. Thank you. Um, Daniel, you've really, you've really cleared a lot up for me, this chat. Thank you. Not not just yes, no. not just that pathologists are not <laughs> not in the basement <laughs> doing their business. Um, but no, what a what a fantastic what a fantastic job you do, and what an incredible community you're part of. So, thank you um, from me and the team here for uh, for joining me on the podcast today.
1: Uh, thanks, Catherine. Again, thanks for the opportunity to uh, yeah, to speak as part of this podcast. It's uh, it's good to be able to you know, to to let people out there know what we do. Um, and hopefully to help people as well. Yeah,
0: I think you're helping a lot of people. Daniel, thank you again for joining us.
1: Okay, thanks, Kath.
0: Well, welcome to the podcast, Jackie. It's lovely to have you. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of it. Oh, it's wonderful. Wonderful to uh, to chat before we worked out the technology. There's always something, isn't there? <laughs> 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 nothing, nothing like having an office near the uh, the radiology department, is there in a hospital and lots of lead, but we're okay. Um, Jackie Woods, so you are a clinical nurse consultant. Um, thank you again for joining us. Um, for those listening can you explain what the role of a clinical nurse consultant is once somebody has been diagnosed with sarcoma?
3: Yeah, sure. So our roles will differentiate a little bit, a little bit between the states. I'm quite specifically um, a statewide service. My job is involved in triaging the referrals and being a point of um, GPs and other specialists to refer to and offer advice as far as where to navigate the best place in the first instance when we receive a referral. The other part of my job is just making sure that we get all our scans and an early diagnosis. So, that ties in really well with triaging of referrals. So that's predominantly done through the surgical team mm-hmm. and then managing the multidisciplinary meeting and then following the patient through that journey from there.
0: So what, what are the complexities of managing a new patient and, and their referral system through the sarcoma service?
3: Well, firstly, just making sure that... Um, GPs and fellow clinicians know exactly where, who to contact. Mm -hmm. So I think that might be, you know, one of the obstacles in, in the way of, for patients and for external clinicians. Um, So we've tried really hard to advertise this service, um, that through Soccer to Sarcoma and our surgeons doing many, um, many talks and, and so forth at conferences. But really having knowing exactly where to go with a specific potential sarcoma problem um,
0: is, is probably the most important part and hence early diagnosis as all sarcoma patients would know. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And um, What are the challenges of coordinating the multidisciplinary team around a, a sarcoma diagnosis and journey?
3: Because we've got such a stable team at the moment, that's really helpful. So we have a multidisciplinary meeting every week. Mm -hmm. So any concerning patients, we try to get onto that meeting, you know, that very same week. Even if we refer to patients on a Monday or Tuesday, we try really hard to make sure they've had an MRI because that's really helpful, which then designates um, the need or not for a core needle biopsy. Um and then and and then things go pretty quickly from there. So I think having a centralized service mm-hmm. is
0: key to to all of these um these these potential obstacles. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, because it's there's a lot of people involved, isn't there, in in somebody's sarcoma journey.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I think getting the diagnosis first mm-hmm. and then from there, And and discussing that diagnosis and best treatment plan from there at a multidisciplinary meeting, and then the rest seems to fall into place reasonably quickly. Um, You know, some sarcomas are very rare, and and sometimes it takes a little bit longer to get though. You know, a core needle biopsy done, perhaps, Mm -hmm. or it needs to be sent for additional pathological testing, which sometimes slows the process down a little bit. However, in the big scheme of things, I think things are done pretty rapidly when we are suspicious of a sarcoma.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Jackie, is it your role um, to help a patient navigate the system um, or is that somebody else's role within the team?
3: No, no, it absolutely is my role, yeah, and I take full responsibility for that, especially at diagnostic stage. Mm -hmm. Once the patients are referred to specific specialities, you know, each speciality has their team. And at the same time, my responsibility is to coordinate anything that may go wrong. I need to know that it's going wrong from those specialities. And that sometimes, and patients will always have my contact details, but they try to be so stoic and brave that they try not to contact us. And I'm not always immediately contactable either. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's probably something that makes it a bit difficult for patients
0: just because we're a bit under mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Jackie, what is your role in a, a post-treatment phase of a patient's journey? So post-treatment um, I pretty much take over the surveillance
3: with obviously the backup of my wider team mm-hmm. um, and that usually encompasses an MRI of the area affected and then a CT chest. So national guidelines, say so we do that four monthly for two years, then six monthly for two years, then annually for four. So what we do in our service is um, after the first baseline test, the patients come in and see the doctors and myself. And then after that, we do telephonic consults with um, the reports and requests sent to specific radiology firms and um, if the patients are happy, they get phone calls and those reports in the mail and phone calls from me. So far, the patients seem to really like this. It makes them, you know, it seems to make most patients less anxious about having to come into hospital and just a reminder of that time when they were maybe pretty sick and and distressed. So I'm hoping to actually do a study on the effects of this. I've been doing this for six years now. Uh And I always offer the patients the option to come in if they prefer, but they all seem to be preferring this. There are also there are also some obstacles about this manner as well, which I'm prepared to go into as well if, if you'd like. However, um, I think it's working well for patients. I'm mm-hmm. very happy to get
0: feedback if it's not. <laughs> <laughs> So it's fair to say you are somebody um, that's, that's there at the beginning and right throughout uh, a sarcoma patient's journey um, and their families, you know, until, until they reach that sort of four year mark clear, isn't it? And then it's, it's an annual thing.
2: Yeah,
3: absolutely. Um, and it's annually for four years, you know. And so at the eight year post um, diagnosis and treatment phase, we do discharge our patients back to their GP Mm -hmm. and I know that can be quite a vulnerable while celebratory phase a bit of a vulnerable phase and so they will always have our contact details Mm -hmm. and if ever they need it and we do stipulate and we write it to the GP and for patients ever feeling anxious about it that we can see them at pretty short notice Mm -hmm. and really endeavor to do so.
0: Oh, that's fabulous to hear. Uh, Jackie, thank you so much for your time. I'm glad we got through those uh, thick walls in the hospital <laughs> <and> <laughs> that we finally connected. Um, but thank you so much uh, for all that you do. And thank you for making time for, for, you know, for, for us and to join us on the pod. It's
3: an absolute pleasure. And
4: take care to everybody out there.
0: Professor David Gilkey, how are you?
5: I'm very well, thanks, Cass. Good morning.
0: Have I said that correctly?
5: That is excellent. Very <laughs> good pronunciation.
0: <laughs> I've been been up through the night going, make sure you say it right. But uh, but all good. So um, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for taking some time to chat to us.
5: Happy to be here and thanks so much for uh, helping out in this great initiative.
0: My pleasure. Um, David, could you tell us a little bit more about your um, impressive body of work in this uh, sarcoma space?
5: Sure. So I have a a strong clinical interest in uh, the management of patients with soft tissue sarcoma Um, and as part of that, I have a major research interest in better understanding the outcomes and how to improve outcomes for these patients. My particular research interest in sarcoma is in patients with retroperitoneal sarcoma, which is about 20% of soft tissue sarcomas that occur at the back of the abdomen. Mm
2: -hmm.
5: And uh, this is a big group of different types of rare cancers, all of which are in the same uh, anatomical location at the back of the abdomen. And it's been a poorly studied group of patients um, because of its rarity. And so I've joined this large international collaboration uh, where about 30 hospitals uh, around the world have combined their uh, efforts and have developed a common set of data that we're all collecting uh, prospectively to try and better understand this, uh, this disease, or this group of diseases. And so, so far over the last five years or so, uh, we've collected over 2,000 patients' data and we're continuing to track these patients, and it's by these sorts of strong international collaborations that we can better understand uh, how to improve outcomes for patients with rare cancers.
0: From talking to different specialists on the podcast, I have found that all you know, there is a real international connection, isn't there, in the sarcoma space? You know, there is a lot of, um, I guess, chat from from people around the world. That, that it's quite a small network, isn't it?
5: Well, the only way to understand rare Cancers properly is to have strong collaboration because mm-hmm. while you can have uh, a very strong uh, presence from a single site in a common cancer like breast cancer or lung cancer or prostate cancer, even a high volume center in sarcoma only sees a relatively small number of patients with any one type of sarcoma because there are, you know, up to a hundred different types of sarcomas. And so the only way to develop uh, large patient data sets and to run clinical studies in uh, sarcoma is by having strong international collaboration.
0: Um, how does your work as a surgical oncologist specializing in sef- in soft tissue how does that fit into the sarcoma MDT?
5: So uh, the sarcoma uh, MDT uh, involves a large number of uh, specialists from uh, the radiologists who do the biopsies to the uh, pathologists who read the biopsies and who look at this um, uh, and who look at the uh, tissue that's retrieved from surgery uh, to all the different specialists who treat the uh, cancer, including uh, medical oncologists who uh, administer chemotherapy to um, uh, radiation oncologists who do radiotherapy. And then surgical oncologists, who are the surgeons responsible uh, for removing the tumours uh, at the time of diagnosis or at uh, some other time during the patient uh, treatment pathway. So, I, you know, the surgeon is integral to the management of sarcoma because, you know, for patients with primary tumours, the main day of treatment for most patients is to have surgery to have the tumour removed. Mm-hmm.
0: And in your opinion, what is the importance of treatment and timely referral to a multidisciplinary team or MDT as I I called it earlier?
2: So the the
5: early referral to the MDT is critical because of all those steps that I talked about before. You want to have an expert radiologist who does the biopsy correctly so that you get the right bit of tissue to the pathologist. You want to have an expert pathologist who reads the biopsy who can tell you exactly which type of sarcoma it is. So when the clinicians who treat the cancer receive that information, they can make the best treatment plan. and that treatment plan will often involve multiple different uh, uh, treatment um, will often involve multiple different treatment types. so it might be a combination of radiation and surgery or chemotherapy and surgery, or in some cases chemotherapy and radiation and surgery in various orders. Uh, and the sooner the patient is within the multidisciplinary team, the more quickly and efficiently that treatment plan can be created.
0: Can be rolled out, I've got you. And at what point do you generally see patients? Um, are they referred to you by their GP after investigation or upon suspecting a sarcoma could be the issue?
5: So, my preference obviously is that the referral happens as early as possible. Mm-hmm. Many patients uh, have their sarcomas discovered incidentally. They have a scan for some other reason, and the scan shows a mass, and the mass was never – the patient had no idea there was anything wrong with them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I see many patients at that point, which is a good time because a good time to be diagnosed with your uh, tumour is before you really know about it and before it's causing you any problems. Um, Sometimes I get referred a patient who's been seen by another surgeon and has a biopsy done by the other surgeon, and it's that biopsy that's diagnosed with sarcoma and that uh, uh, triggers the referral. So obviously, my preference is the first one. The second one is usually okay. Mm-hmm. My least preferred referral is the patient who's gone to see another person who hasn't been sure exactly what it is, has removed the lump or the mass, thinking I'm not sure what this is, and it turns out to be a sarcoma. Uh, because in that setting, uh, obviously, the multidisciplinary team which, had, which may have recommended a different order of treatments where surgery may not have been first, now is no longer able uh, to perform optimally mm-hmm. um, because we're starting with the tumour already removed. The tumour may not have been completely removed. The tumour may not have been removed uh, the way that a specialist in sarcoma would have done the surgery. Uh, and so those patients can be more difficult to treat. So the earlier the referral, the better.
0: The better, yeah, time. It's yeah. all about timing, isn't it? Um, in your Correct. words, what would be the red flags both a patient and frontline clinician should be taking on board? Um, and also, how long should a symptom be left before consulting a medical professional?
5: So, the red flag symptoms, uh, so, you know, lumps and bumps are common and many <laughs> sarcomas present as a lump. So, any lump that's more than five centimetres in any location should raise a red flag, any lump that's deep. By deep, we mean that it's not in the skin or under the skin, but it's in, within the muscle or uh, in a deeper part of the uh, tissues in the abdominal wall or inside the abdomen, um, and any lump that's growing. Mm-hmm. So, the nine lumps generally don't grow, or if they grow, they grow very, very slowly. So, a lump that's growing quickly... Is generally not a benign process and should be seen to rapidly, okay. as in within a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, what was the second part of your question? Sorry,
0: two part to that one. Um, how yeah. long? <laughs> how long? I've had two coffees, Sorry, uh, how long should a symptom be left before consulting a medical professional?
5: So, you know, I think that any of those red flag symptoms should be attended to as a matter of relative. Uh, urgency. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean if you've got a lump, you should go to the emergency department that day, but you should be seen within a matter of, you know, two or three weeks. Okay. Uh, and, and generally, uh, the first step would be to get some sort of imaging, mm-hmm. whether that be a CT scan uh, or an ultrasound or an MRI scan, uh, depending on availability And if those raise red flags, then an early referral to a sarcoma specialist um, would be appropriate.
0: Thank you. Okay. Um, Now, in a perfect world, how would you like to see the referral process take place to minimize time and possible misdiagnosis?
5: So, I think in the setting of soft tissue tumors, which sarcoma makes the bulk of them, Mm -hmm. uh, early referral is key. And so, for early referral, that actually means over-referral because what you want is to have a whole bunch of people referred to specialists and be told that everything's okay in order Mm -hmm. to save a few people from a delayed referral and missing the opportunity to have optimal treatment. And I think that that's the critical message, that if there is even a little bit of suspicion that uh, a lump might be sarcoma, it's better to just refer to a specialist, Mm -hmm. you know, myself And my colleagues are never going to say, we don't want to see you because you don't have a clear diagnosis of sarcoma, and we're only going to see you if you've got a clear diagnosis of sarcoma. The key is refer early, be reassured by a specialist, because then at least you know that the reassurance is real, and then get on with your life. Yeah. Um, That is a much better way than actually, you know what, the specialist doesn't want to see you until they're sure that you've got sarcoma, um, in which case a lot of people are going to end up with a delayed referral look and that's
0: the main theme that's run through this podcast series um from all of the specialists that we've chatted to um it's not time wasting especially for parents listening you know you're better to have that reassurance everything is okay than worry that you're wasting people's time you know just just as you put it then david um have you seen any trends pertaining to soft tissue sarcomas um you know i increased diagnosis demographic mortality rates changing.
5: So I think one of the trends is, uh, and a trend that's been pushed in Australia by the Australian New Zealand Sarcoma Association, mm-hmm. of which I'm one of the directors, has been to uh, improve uh, the network of specialist centres. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've had a major program underway over the last few years to uh, identify where uh, who are and where are the key sarcoma specialist centres within each state mm-hmm. um, and those specialist centres are places that have a regular multidisciplinary team meeting are places that participate in research in uh, sarcoma um, and I think by having those sarcoma centres acknowledged and listed on the uh, ANSA website uh, there is a resource there for patients and for people who may have been recently diagnosed with sarcoma to seek out um, the sites where they're going to be offered the best care. Um, and then the other trend that we talked about is international collaboration. And so, you know, we've recently been successful with a, a, an MRFF grant, that's the Medical Research Future Fund, to have Australia participate in a large international clinical trial, of uh, chemotherapy prior to surgery for patients with retroperitoneal sarcoma? So This is a really uh, important question in the field. Um, And as with many different rare cancers, different specialist centres have their own biases. So some centres use chemotherapy very liberally, uh, particularly in the United States. A lot of centres give chemotherapy to patients at an early stage in the diagnosis. In Australia, we generally use chemotherapy at a later stage, Mm -hmm. but there's not strong data to support that. And so what this trial seeks to do is to take patients with specific types of sarcoma. We talked about all the different types of sarcoma and many previous studies have lumped a lot of patients with different types of cancers together. This trial tries to do it in a much cleaner manner. You're only eligible if you have a particular type of sarcoma and this big international collaboration is working to identify the role of a particular type of chemotherapy for a particular type of sarcoma in a very specific setting. And this is the way that I think we're going to improve uh, outcomes for patients by drilling down to doing the right trial for the right patients um, using these the big international networks. So I'm really grateful to the MRFF for having identified this as a high-priority study. And you know, in the next few years, we'll start to see some results and hopefully that'll help to improve outcomes for patients.
0: Congratulations on the grant by the way that's, uh, that's incredible news. i 'm very yeah, exciting, thanks, yeah. very exciting for the future, as you say. Um, sarcoma, as we know, is really prevalent in, in the, the younger and, and the, the older population um, there's been have you seen a, a worrying surge in the over 65s um, with soft tissue sarcomas sort of you know arising?
5: so I wouldn't. A worrying surge. You know, so you know sarcomas are generally rare cancers, mm-hmm. and uh, like most cancers, um, they affect uh, patients as they age. It's true that of all different cancer types, sarcoma is the one that affects young people uh, the most, mm-hmm. or it's one of the most prevalent uh, cancers among the uh, adolescent uh, population. But the majority of patients, particularly with soft tissue sarcoma, uh, People in older uh, over an older age, and as the population ages, the rates of sarcoma will increase as well. But no, I wouldn't say that there's been a surge. What I would like to see is increased number of patients referred to specialist Mm centres. So, uh, and I think that that's probably what we are seeing. So the volume of uh, sarcomas in uh, our centre here uh, at Peter Mac has uh, increased quite significantly over the last few years. Um, with retroperitoneal sarcoma, which is my particular interest, you know, we've seen a uh, five-fold increase in the volume that we're doing uh, annually over the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. But that's because I have put my hand up and said I want to be doing these operations and so my surgical colleagues who are not experts in the field are referring those patients to me, which is an excellent trend.
0: Got yeah. The registry initiative that you just discussed—I mean, two thousand patients is a lot of patients when we're talking about a rare cancer. How how are the patients? How are they about getting involved? Are they happy to to get involved in the registry process?
5: Yeah, so that's a great question, Cat. Um, every patient I see now with a new diagnosis of retroperitoneal sarcoma, I discuss this registry with them and I explain to them how you know it's these sorts of initiatives that are going to help us to understand their cancer and the cancer of patients in the future better and I've yet to meet a patient who does not want to be a participant in it. Uh, Patients are enthusiastic, patients see that it's this sort of data collection that is going to improve outcomes for patients in the future and so it's a really great initiative and I'm very grateful to all of my patients and for the patients around the world participating.
0: That's fantastic, absolutely fantastic. Now, I know that you've got a full day of surgery ahead, so I will, um, I'll, wrap, I'll wrap our chat up. But what I'd like to, uh, to finish with is um, what excites you, David, about the future for sarcoma patients?
5: So, what excites me about the future is, um, and I'll talk about the international collaborations again, because I think that that's the key mm-hmm. to, uh, to understanding the disease. Um, as we better understand, What the different sarcoma subtypes are, um, we're better able to tailor treatments to each of the individual types of tumors. So, you know, going back, you know, 30 or 40 years, any soft tissue tumor was lumped in as a particular type of sarcoma and treatments were tailored to a large and very mixed group of patients. Now, with increasing technologies, uh, we're able to drill down and pigeonhole patients into different types of sarcomas, and we're now developing treatments for each of those individual sarcomas types. So it is difficult because there's many fewer patients in each of those groups, but at least we can work out and tailor treatment specifically and therefore improve, patients for each, improve outcomes for each of those types of sarcomas. The other thing that excites me is podcasts like this one. Because I think the key to improving outcomes is awareness and early Absolutely. referral, which is the point that you've been making over and again. And I am strongly encouraging that point to be made over and again. So I'm you know, very excited to be part of this podcast. And you know, hopefully the uh, listeners will find something in this, uh, in this series um, to help. Uh, to help with improving outcomes for patients with sarcoma, which is, after all, what we're all about.
0: Absolutely, couldn't have said it better myself, David. Well done, <laughs> spot on, spot on. Thank you so much for your time. Congratulations again on the grant. Um, and and yes, that was that was fascinating. And and I think, as you said, it is it is resources like a podcast that can bring. Um, a pamphlet that might be someone else's option about sort of you know expanding their knowledge in sarcoma brings it to life when we get to speak to specialists like you so thank you very much again for your time
5: thank
2: you
0: well deborah york welcome to the podcast thank you for joining us Thank you, Kev. It's lovely to be here. It's great to it's great to see you even if it's on Zoom, thanks to lockdown, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> We're getting used to this. We are getting used to it, aren't we, sadly? Getting much much more technically uh, savvy than we used to be anyway. Yeah. Um yeah. Deb, you're a clinical psychologist, um, which is why we've asked asked you to join us on this episode of the podcast. Um, I think I'd like to start by asking why is a collaborative approach and specifically including a, a clinical psychologist important in cancer treatment?
4: Okay, so um what we know is that growing evidence suggests that the psychosocial needs of cancer patients and the carers is currently not adequately met and psychological morbidity is under and undertreated. So what that means is people can have a diagnosis of cancer and have a pre-existing mental disorder that may be unrecognised and untreated and then they get a diagnosis. So that gets missed, the mental health illness. And also we know that people who have no history, no psychiatric history, but then have a diagnosis of cancer, that is then associated with a higher risk of mental illness. So considering that, and as well that... um, people are at a higher risk of suicide when they have a diagnosis of cancer than the general population. But what needs to be thought about here is that that is dependent on the type of cancer, um, the type of treatment they receive, and prognosis. So what does all of this mean? You know, if somebody has a cancer diagnosis as well as a mental illness, um, we find that people might not adhere to treatment. And this can be really concerning to the medical practitioner, but it also can be, you know, really significant to the patient. Um, It can be detrimental in pain management. And sometimes um, pain can be misrepresented and actually be anxiety. It can be detrimental to physical functioning. And this can lead to um, higher medical costs, longer stays in hospitals, and significant distress and um, suffering
2: for the patient. Lots, yeah. yeah, lots to
0: think about there. Thanks. Thank yeah. you for that, Deb. I, yeah, I hadn't thought about a lot of that, but I suppose you don't need to until you're there, do you? Yeah. Um, how do you address the individual experience for somebody with a sarcoma diagnosis once you start to work with them?
4: Okay. So, you know, um, we're all unique, aren't we? We're all unique individuals, yeah, and um, sometimes that gets a little bit missed because people get into a system and treatment is prescribed and and the best is being done for the survival of that person. So my role as a clinical psychologist is to actually meet the individual and look out what do they need as this individual experiencing this diagnosis. So... You know, people come with their own history, their own experiences, life experiences, and um, their perception of those experiences. They come with their own coping mechanisms. Some are helpful, some are unhelpful. They come with their own personality factors. They come with um, concurrent stresses, so financial stress or maybe relationship difficulties. They'll have some people have um, might come with a cultural background or religious beliefs. Um, and also they'll be at a stage in the lifespan. So if we think, you know, a cancer diagnosis at adolescence and young adulthood compared to a cancer diagnosis at midlife or as the provider of a young family, um, as uh, a young couple retiring, one member gets cancer. So for that stage of that person's life, that cancer diagnosis will affect them in a different way and have a different meaning. And people also have their own personal meanings about their life. You know, they, they have their own hopes and dreams, their assumptions about the world and about themselves and their assumptions about their future life, which, has, which may possibly need to be rethought at a great level, deep level, once they have a diagnosis. So they're all the things I think about when I meet somebody.
2: Yes.
0: And
4: as a unique
0: human being. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the different types of support a person diagnosed with sarcoma and um, or their carers or families should be able to access and why?
4: Okay. So I guess the best way to answer this question is, is to sort of refer to a bit of the research and there's this recent research out of Curtin University and we know that unmet needs of sarcoma patients and their carers, um, that there are these unmet needs and that um, the time of support needed, uh, a lot of this time is lacking. And so this research identified things like financial support, people looking for financial support, um, transport pro- problems, you know, people going to treatment for five weeks for radiation therapy. How do they get there? How do they get home? How do they access um, somebody who can tell them who might be able to support them? There might be a patient cancer system involved in the hospital. Um, they wanted support in helping to navigate the healthcare system, um, support in daily living, which is due to functional difficulties. So people sometimes have legs amputated, so they, they want support there. Support in the way of a community, a group that they can identify with. And carers specifically said things like, what is support in how to administer medication? And so people are often treated as outpatients now and have been for a long time, with cancer. And, and the role of administering medication is supported by the carer. Um, they also wanted to know, the carer wanted more support in things like um, the medical aspects of their loved one's cancer. You know, what is the treatment? Um, what is it like for them? What do they experience? Just some, more from a medical perspective mm-hmm. so that they can can benefit from that in their caring role.
0: And and in your experience, you know, as we touched on when we started to chat, obviously COVID and, and life has changed a lot. So ideally, face to face is is always our first preference, isn't it? But but have you noticed a change in um, patients accessing people as such as yourself over Zoom now because that's just part of our life? Uh, I do see. I
4: do do a lot of telehealth, and I do mm-hmm. see a lot of people over Zoom. I do. Um, Well, actually, I I use a different platform which is recommended by the Australian Psychological Society. um, But what's been of major benefit is the additional 10 sessions that the government has provided. Mm -hmm. And this has been fantastic for people struggling during this time. You know, people might be struggling with cancer, but now they're also struggling with the constraints of COVID.
0: Absolutely. And
4: so... and. Even if they are in lockdown, they can still have their weekly appointments yep. or their fortnightly psychological appointments. It's been such a fantastic thing that has happened um, in the area. Yeah, it's so, been a, um, it's
0: been a real silver lining, hasn't it? I think absolutely out of something yes. that's, a, that's been a pretty horrific at times. It's been a real silver lining. Um, yes, I would agree like anything especially when it comes to the psychological side of of, of anyone's journey um one size doesn't fit all does it and so so sometimes people might want to to reach out to to somebody like you Deb on the beginning of their journey when they've just been diagnosed others will pick it up as as they go along um what what is considered the best time to reach out for support
4: okay okay so um You know, I I guess the way to answer this question also is to think about the phase of the illness. So, you know, people have the initial diagnosis, people um, have their treatment phase, then they go, possibly go into recovery and survival, and then some people might have disease progression or recurrence. So these are all varying stages that present um, varying needs that the patient will have, as well as psychological and emotional issues that may come about through these stages. You know, it, I, I think really, ideally, at the beginning, the initial diagnosis, that's my personal and professional opinion. Um, but people may not be ready to accept it then, they might be in shock. So if we can offer it frequently throughout this, but the phase of the illness, they get, they get an opportunity and then they get another opportunity. And they might finally decide, yeah, I want to take that that offer up. You know, I've been involved in, in a research project with Associate Professor Georgia Health at, at Curtin Uni for a long time. And that's looked at um, an intervention provided to patients at the beginning of their radiation therapy. And in that intervention, it's a psychosocial intervention that helps the radiation therapist to pick up if this person might need some extra support. And what might that be? It might be some practical support, but it also might be some psychological support. And this is an opportunity where it can be offered and the person can be referred to somebody like myself. So, you know, ideally at the beginning, but Mm -hmm. if we can keep providing that and people know that it's there if they want to take it up.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and does, it, you know, is it the MDT team that would keep suggesting to a patient if they haven't taken this up in the beginning um, stage? Is that how it works? Well, I guess it's different for each hospital. Mm-hmm.
4: Um, we, we have, I guess, that the, the uh, medical oncologist, the radiation oncologist might something up and, and make that referral mm-hmm.
2: um,
4: I'm not sure of what their their process is and when they choose to do that because I think all hospitals have their own forms of usual care mm-hmm. um, I think there's definitely room to change here I think there's definitely room for people to be more aware of it because my experience is that a lot of people come to see me without that awareness that it was available
0: that's interesting um, to just- hear
4: yeah, yeah, and it only comes from word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it was offered by the in the hospital, but they just missed it. They couldn't take it yes. in at the time. So much, much so much going miss-
0: on, absolutely. No, yeah. no, absolutely. That's um that's very interesting to hear. Um can I can I finish by asking what do you see the value of being connected to a community familiar with a specific ca- cancer diagnosis, obviously in this case sarcoma? Yeah. So if you think
2: about the
4: sarcoma. First of all, it's rare. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that can put people in a place of isolation, feeling alone. And we also know that it imposes a significant burden on the lives of patients. And sometimes, um, many survivors have a long-term disability. So adjusting to this is sort of, it's pretty much ongoing, you know. Um, and it's common in younger age groups. So if we think about that and we go back to what I spoke about, the lifespan and, and developmental stages, it, it, just for example, we think about an adolescent or young adult. You know, really what's important in that stage of their life is the development of their identity. Mm-hmm. And the peer group is really important. And a sense of belonging to that peer group is really important. We know that a sense of belonging is a protective factor against depression in um, adolescence, it's also um, really supportive of our, all of us, our well-being. So if we think about the adolescent or the young adulthood where they feel really different to the peer group, but they're wanting and needing that sense of belonging, if we can link them in with a support group, a community of young people who have gone through or who are going through what they are experiencing, they can then feel connected, they can have a sense of belonging to that group. And what they can also have, they can have a place to talk about things that someone else would say, yeah, I've been feeling like that too. Mm-hmm. Or I get worried about how my mum and dad are dealing with this as well. You know, and and this can be really vital to their psychological and emotional um, well-being and management during the course of, of this illness.
0: Yes, that's... Yeah. That's uh, that sounds crucial, and and it's hard, isn't it? You know, as a, as adults, you'd forget how you were as a teenager, yeah. and that you've got all of that de- developmental stuff going on as well as as you yeah. know, sort of now on this kind of sarcoma journey. Um, that was that was fascinating, Deb. I could yeah. <laughs> I could talk to you for an yeah. hour, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on, te- think- on telehealth or not, yeah. <laughs> i could talk for an hour I yeah, so i know I, yeah. I, I really appreciate um uh, first of all i really appreciate your time coming on the podcast and i appreciate um us coming up with with some concise answers to um you know mm-hmm. to again something that that you could talk you know for a long time about um yeah. but a real crucial part of anyone's journey i think and and thank you for sharing your uh, your experience and thoughts thank you thank you kat
3: thank you for having me it's been a pleasure
0: Welcome, Christine Coburn from Rare Cancers Australia. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks, Catherine. My pleasure. Um, Christine, can you tell me a little bit about your role at Rare Cancers Australia and how long you've been in that role?
6: Sure. Um, I am very privileged to be the Head of Patient Support here at Rare Cancers Australia. I also head up the operations team. Um, So we have a team of specialist cancer navigators and we look after patients who need guidance and support. I've been here for about three and a half years in various roles, um, and it is uh, ever-changing. There's much work to be done, so it's a great privilege having this role.
0: Um, given your vast experience within the rare cancer space, can you tell me in your own words why referral to a specialist clinician and or team is paramount given there, there must be a requirement for most, if not all, rare cancers to be treated by a specialist in that area?
6: Yeah, Catherine, the patients that we see are very often, and particularly in the sarcoma uh, population, very small patient population groups. There are sometimes just a handful of those patients in in the whole country and sometimes in the whole world mm-hmm. in, in the literature. So you realistically can't expect, uh, you know, uh, any specialist to understand every treatment pathway and every disease when you're looking at a disease that potentially they come across maybe once or twice in their careers. Uh, so the idea is that the... Rare cases go to the people who have really put their life's work into understanding those very niche diseases, those very small patient populations, and have some experience with, with treating them. It's, it's just not realistic to expect every oncologist in Australia to, to understand how to treat a Ewing sarcoma or mm-hmm. a hemangiopericytoma. So, going to the where the, the centres of excellence or the MDTs where the work is being done is absolutely vital.
0: What are the recurrent repercussions to the patient that you you see in your role um, when they're not referred in the correct manner to a specialist clinician?
6: Uh, Unfortunately, we do see that. What we find is that people are undergoing fairly old, fairly standard uh, therapies that that are quite well understood not to be particularly effective,
2: Mm
6: -hmm. Um, that they end up perhaps sometimes having treatments um, of varying modalities perhaps in an order that has been shown to not be the right order of things, uh, whether that's surgery, radiation, systemic treatment, immunotherapies. As the knowledge gets better and better, the order of things becomes clearer. Uh, perhaps people are having, um, you know, things just not in the correct um, correct order, a surgery before a radiation or vice versa, things like that. So, And also, I think just uh, understanding the very, very emerging research that's being done with new and emerging technologies like immunotherapies and, uh, you know, very importantly, undergoing genome and genetic sequencing so that we can understand the molecular drivers that are very very personal um, information that can um, lead the uh, treatment pathway. And if those steps are not taken in the very early stages, then, you know, fundamentally patients lose time mm-hmm. and they often just can't spare it, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, Christine.
0: How would you personally like to see the diagnosis and referral process take place to potentially enable better outcomes for your patients?
6: Um, Catherine, I think ideally that uh, the case does come before clinicians who are familiar a little bit, if not with treating the disease itself, then at least with the latest emerging research. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a a fantastic um, initiative that's come out of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute with uh, led by Professor Claire Scott and her team there. And essentially what that is is, is, is a portal. It's a rare cancer portal. And what that is is a, a gateway for clinicians right across Australia to to access a brain's trust of specialists of, of whom there are very few, right? Mm-hmm. We, can't, we can't all speak to David Thomas. We can't all speak to Professor Claire Scott. The idea is that the the clinicians can go through this portal and access a a, a brain's trust of specialists who are familiar with very rare cancers and and get advice on the best treatment um, approaches. Now, that has several fantastic benefits for patients. Ideally, it would facilitate a timely referral to an expert, Mm -hmm. but it also allows patients to stay with their clinicians. So if you're living in Bowen and you don't have to travel to melbourne or to sydney to to access those specialists you can stay with your clinician in your own environment in your hometown with your support system Mm -hmm. and your clinician can access the brain's trust now a model like that for every oncologist to be able to access you know a a really cutting-edge team of specialists is such a gold standard model it would be incredible if everybody had that opportunity
0: No, it sounds incredible. Um, Can I ask, how does RCA assist and support people with potentially suspicious diagnoses to appropriate referral pathways?
6: It's a good question. So we rely very heavily on a a, um, medical advisory Mm -hmm. group. Uh, it's It's an informal group of people that we know are working in the research translational research spaces and who collaborate very broadly in a global sense. So we're able to take the patient's natural history and where where they've been so far and then to consult with a medical advisory person about the best options and where perhaps the patient should be directed, the conversations that they should be having with their clinicians about next steps. Fabulous.
0: Um, Can I ask, what is the key message you would like to leave for anyone listening to this podcast on the importance of timely referral to a specialist clinician?
6: I think the key message is to not be afraid to go with your gut. If for the patients, um, particularly if you don't feel right about something that you've um, that's been presented to you, don't be afraid to ask questions, and we can help you to find the to. Sorry. Don't be afraid to ask questions and uh, escalate your concerns. Really listen to your gut, and uh, we're here to to help people just talk talk through those feelings and. And to help you to navigate um, really timely responses, I think clinicians are invariably there to to get good results they 'll be on your team and we can help you to to understand the conversations perhaps you should have um, it 's just so that we can help i guess to cut down on the time to specialists, um, which obviously we know results in better outcomes
0: mm-hmm. christine a, a lot of um, a lot of the guests on episode one said something similar. you know go with your gut. It's, it's, yeah. be, it's better to walk away and go, oh, well, it's not that than, than to, to sort of doubt or question or wait. You're not wasting anybody's time in this space.
6: A hundred percent. And when it comes to a disease area like sarcomas, which are so multi and so varied and can, can present in the most unusual ways, you know, we, we've been playing around with messaging and, and come up with things like, you know, lumps are bad. Don't, don't just sit and don't just sit and do nothing. You, you know when there's something not right, and yeah, keep looking until you get the answers. Magic, Christine. Thank you so much for your time. My
0: pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Let's Talk About Sarcoma. For more information, please visit the Cooper Rice Braiding Foundation at www.crbf.org.au and Socket to Sarcoma at ww.socket